Get me back to Nigeria, get me back to a police station, to a prison where something's either going to happen to me or I'm going to see some things. And the whole point was to make me sign some papers, essentially resigning from the board and selling my shares of the, of the company for probably some symbolic amount of one dollar or ten dollars. Here today with my good friend Marek Smymowski. He is a Polish-born entrepreneur and executive uh, focused on online businesses in frontier and emerging markets. He co-founded Jumia Travel, HotelOnline.co, and is the author of Chasing Black Unicorns, How Building the Amazon of Africa Put Me on Interpol's Most Wanted List. Marek, welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. Andrew, as always, great pleasure to be here on your show. It's it's great to have you on. Uh, certainly interesting times in the world. And so how is, I, I know the Polish version of the book has been out for a while. Mm-hmm. How has the whole book experience been for you? So I haven't really started promoting the book yet. Definitely it was a big adventure to publish the book because in Poland, I've decided to go with uh, the, the, the old school way. I decided to publish with a big, old, reliable you know, brand, uh, one of the biggest publishers in Poland, and he definitely helped you with promotion. And because of how well the book was received in Poland, and also because I kind of realized that you know, being an author and traveling just to speak about my life over and over again, maybe not necessarily is what I want to do in life, I just decided to publish the book on my own so I can control what I'm going to do with it. It took me six months to to have that book in, for example, audio version on Audible. So although the book has been in sale for the last couple of months already on Amazon and a couple of other local stores and and websites in Nigeria, Kenya, States and South Africa, it only got just approved uh, in an audio book version on Audible. And now I'm figuring out how to start my promotion (laughs) because it was like I already forgot about it and now I have to go back to it. So um. Yeah, that, that's where I am right now. Um, haven't really given this book to too many people in the English version, so it's still going to be an interesting journey to to see how you know people from Nigeria, from South Africa, and so from countries where the the, the story really happens will relate to it. So that's going to be definitely exciting. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to receive one of the early English copies, I guess, and yeah. I thought it was it was fascinating. I mean, I knew kind of from the outside looking in, just as a friend, what some of the situations you got yourself into, but <laughs> it was really interesting to read about it from the inside looking out. What's it like to wake up one day and realize that you're on Interpol's most wanted list? <laughs> I didn't wake up really. That was that actually happened at the airport when I was flying, and the lady that was checking my passport. First, she said that there were some technical issues and I have to wait a little bit longer. And uh, at some point, she became totally white. <laughs> she was she was a Polish lady and they didn't know what to do. And uh, before I even realized what's happening, there were like two huge immigration officers behind me that took me to another room. And uh, by that time, no one has told anything. So I was just taken to a room without even being, being answered any questions. And only after they took my stuff and left me in the room without any doorknobs or windows, like a typical, you know, movie, he said that apparently I have done something very, very spectacular because I am wanted by the Nigerian government. And uh, apparently in the Interpol warrant, there is a potential penalty of spending 21 years in jail. So in a way, those guys were very amazed (laughs) that I had to do something very, very interesting. 
And obviously, I went through four stages of, you know, when someone dies and then you have that grief and four stages. And uh, you'll see me that here from not even accepting that piece of information to going totally rage to, you know, total depression. And then trying to pick up all the pieces and, and motivating myself to figure out what to do next because I had to spend essentially in, in Polish jail around 24 hours with an information that basically what they're doing is, is trying to figure out how to get me back to Nigeria mm. because there was some misinformation. So I was actually convinced that the only reason why I'm being stopped and, and spending a night in jail is because I'm just waiting for a plane back to Nigeria. And obviously, I knew what's going to happen to me once I get to Nigeria and, and spend the night in Nigerian jail. <laughs> so, um, and what is that? What do you think would have happened to you if you if you were taken back to Nigeria then? So obviously, you know, at that stage, I was able to connect the dot, and I knew that this is just a play to get me back to Nigeria, get me back to a police station, to a prison, where something's either going to happen to me or I'm going to see some things. And the whole point was to make me sign some papers, essentially resigning from the board and selling my shares of the, of the company for probably some symbolic amount of $1 or $10. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, you know, the, the best possible outcome for me would be to, to lose my company. And the worst case scenario, if I didn't want to sign all the papers, would be some physical harm or spending a couple of years in an Adrian jail, which is not a five-star hotel. Yeah, not ideal. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, so I do want to get into what you think is going on right now within Jumia, because I did see that Rocket Internet has officially sold off their stake in it. I'm sure you have some hot takes on that. You know, I guess, can you talk just about your journey, maybe just a few minutes of yeah. your initial initial trip, right, from being a startupper in, in Poland to going to Nigeria to, to start what you did? Yeah, born and raised in Poland, dropped out of first year of university and going straight into business world. At that stage, Poland, the Polish economy was booming. There was there was so much money to be made on selling finance, investment products, mortgages, insurance, etc. So I got into a company like that. And that's where I really made my first big money, my first million. I was like 19, 20 years old and I thought I can conquer the world. And then obviously I went totally down. I got burned out, depressed. I lost all my money. I got myself into uh, big debts. But in the process, I somehow find some motivation to do, go into this so-called startup scene. And I saw that you know, Silicon Valley internet, that's something for me. I don't want to sell insurance products anymore. Long story short, I was able to fail with a couple of additional startups, but I sold another one this time on my own, which was a startup in a essentially uh, automotive verification uh, business. In the process, I met some guys from Rocket Internet. If you're a hustler, if you're an entrepreneur, you definitely want to have a part of your journey in Rocket Internet because this is the McKinsey for entrepreneurs. I was extremely lucky because I got got an offer after some job interview and after talking to some guys I've met. And at that stage, Rocket Internet was really getting ready to go to Africa. And uh, at that time, I thought that I got the job because I was so freaking amazing, but I really got this job because no other manager wanted to go to Nigeria. So I got this essentially offer of my life that I offer I couldn't refuse of moving to Nigeria, a country I know nothing about. And that's how I became co-founder slash managing director and first employee of a company called Jovago. Our goal was to essentially become the, the booking.com or the Expedia of Africa. Did that with Rocket Internet for almost four years. You know, in, in the process of doing this with Rocket Internet and learning how to scale up a business from one to 400 employees from zero to 100 million dollars revenue i also fell in love with africa and i decided to stay in stay in nigeria that was my base and and open this time a company on my own a startup obviously also with the help of a of a business partner of a fund and a local player 
The company was called Hotel Online. We also had a local brand from Nigeria called Hotel Ogar, which is a great local brand. We had that domain and the trademark, so we really wanted to use it. And we and we launched Hotel Ogar, and Hotel Ogar is really what what got me into into the trouble because I had a local partner with whom we really got into a huge conflict about where the company should go. Essentially, it was a disagreement about the business model. And at some stage, the conflict got so heated, and I also can talk a lot about, and at some stage, my local partner decided he wants to get rid of me from the company, and he wants to run this company on his own this time. What he didn't calculate is that uh, there were also other investors in the company and other people in the board. And no one really wanted him to take a lead and everyone really was on my side. Long story short, we decided to run, take this company into the direction where I wanted to. What I didn't know is that one of the worst things that can happen is that if, when you hurt someone's ego, uh, my local investor was also one of the most powerful people in the, in the region. And I just hurt his ego by basically embarrassing him in his eyes uh, because essentially I was the one that removed him and the other way around. And that's what really created the whole conflict, that he decided to really escalate this conflict from a disagreement over where to take this company and some, you know, pushovers within the board in a civilized way into uh, something criminal. And uh, he decided to use his influence and contacts in, the, in Nigerian police and Nigerian government to find a different way to teach me a lesson, essentially. I was extremely lucky because as a Polish citizen, I wasn't extradited to Nigeria just like that. Uh, the Polish prosecutor decided that I'm going to stay in Poland. And if someone wants to prosecute me, I'm going to be prosecuted in Poland, which gave me time and chance to defend myself. We've essentially continued to call, to have a conversation with the Nigerian side. And by recording all the conversations, having an evidence that it's all a setup and it's all, all it was all created to essentially now extort money from me. It was $200,000 that if I pay that money in one week, everything will disappear. Suddenly, Nigerian police won't stop chasing me. All the so-called evidence will disappear and uh, then the Nigerian Ministry of Justice will also in one day or in two days remove the extradition request. So that offer by itself, by definition, already makes the whole thing crazy. Long story short, this took a lot of nerves and sleepless nights and of course money and lawyers and a lot of stressful situations. And 18 months, I was able to get the confirmation of a Nigerian federal court that it was all one huge joke. Uh, I was able to get the confirmation of an, in the Interpol HQ in Lyon in France, and I was able to get an int- uh, confirmation by the Polish uh, Polish judge that there's absolutely no basis to issue such an arrest warrant because there's no evidence of any any crime. A lot of lessons in here. First off, for those listening, if you want to build a startup in an emerging market, do not burn bridges with powerful people. It will oh, yes. not be a good situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and just to finish with that. And that's, of course, the way I decided during this very painful, stressful process that I'm going to write a book about it because that's what really kept me motivated. And I was like, if this has a happy end, this book also going to be so cool. And uh, the moral of the story is that those local investors that I really invited to work with me were actually not Nigerian. They had Indian passport. They had uh, American passport. The main guy had really had an American passport. And the people that really helped me was the Nigerian federal court uh, because they essentially run the, the case the, the proper way uh, without any delays and they have ruled in my favor and there were a lot of nigerians in the process and people from africa that really helped me in this case and supported me which is a great lesson about you know believing stereotypes <laughs> that yeah. um, it's not like people say about who to do business with and who to be afraid of 
So one thing that stood out to me as I was reading the book and actually made this connection in my own mind about a year ago. So in my mind, one of the reasons that Rocket Internet chose you to go to Nigeria is because you had experience building a tech-enabled business in a country that has a mafia-esque business environment. So in Poland, your first company when you were in the funeral space, yeah. like that, that is the epitome, right, of a mafia-run industry in the world. And so there's a lot of parallels between that kind of business environment and being tough enough to go to somewhere like, uh, like in Nigeria and actually build a startup in travel and hospitality space. And so yeah. let's talk about some of the differences and similarities between doing business in Africa and, and doing business in Eastern Europe. And when I was saying before that there was an article about Lydia, which is a um, Nigerian SME lender announcing their expansion into Eastern Europe. And when I first read that, it was, it was kind of a light bulb where it's like, huh, you know, maybe, maybe there's a lot of parallels in that kind of SME environment within those two ecosystems. And there was another streaming service. I, I think they were called or Showmax that came from South Africa into Poland as well. Although I think they called it quits pretty soon after. But, but yeah, can you talk about maybe some of the parallels just kind of between the Polish and the Nigerian business environments? Yes, yes, of course. I, I remember that one of the job interviews I had with Rocket Internet, when essentially they, they were really greeting me about that funeral adventure of mine with a startup there and asking questions because they were so interested. And I just thought that they're trying to find a way to, to prove that I, I'm not really fit for it because my funeral business startup really didn't go that well. There was a there was a sale, but just really to to, to cover the cost of running the of, of launching the company. But what I've realized later is that me building um, essentially what was a marketplace in the funeral business and dealing with people which are on average sixty years old, and I was like early two thousands in 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 Poland, so they they really had no clue about what the internet is, and I had to convince them to work with me and and, and negotiate commission and make them use my software. And um, understand and make them understand that if they don't do any kind of technology evolution within their company operations, they're gonna, no pun intended, die at some point. So all those challenges I, ha I have went through made guys from Rocket understand that you know this particular background can be helpful because Nigeria is similar. We were building marketplaces by education, both the supply side, so the merchants. Or the hotels in, in my case, and, and the buyers and the sellers. And then when you go into example of Poland, obviously Poland has done a tremendous progress in the last 20 years. Poland three years ago is not what it's now. And Poland six years ago is nothing what it was three years ago. Most of entrepreneurs are, are used to working in an environment when you can't really respect the contract that much where you have to build relationship first and do a, do a proper due diligence and ask the network about the particular person. And, and also, although it was 2000 for me, I was working with people very old because, you know, that funeral business was very peculiar. It's as if I was moving in time to 20 years earlier. And definitely, I see this over and over again. Central Eastern European managers really thrive on chaotic environment on this part of this part of business and this part of market growth. They're much better equipped to perform in, uh, in, in Africa. Another great example is Gigi, which is really successful classified business. They were able to really win with OLX and essentially bought OLX in all the African countries besides South Africa. 
MGG is, is is a Ukrainian business, and there are other 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 examples that are probably going to bring up once they come to my head. You know? I mean, I've, I've had a lot of conversations about the Southeast Asian environment as well, and and how a lot of SMEs over there are, or or the SME ecosystem is is so similar, and it seems like equally the sector that all the VCs pour into there as well as fintech. I agree. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I always use this metaphor that. You know, if you want to do business in Africa, you need to have access to technology, you have to have access to capital, and you have to have balls. And for all my feminist friends and your feminist friends listening to us, you got to have ovaries. Yeah? <laughs> um, and, and, and European uh, investors, for that matter, have the money and technology. They don't have the balls or they just, you know, have to comfort the type of business they're running already in their own market. African entrepreneurs have all the balls in the world and they're street smart, but they don't really have access to technology unless they build it themselves or capital. I mean, you know, it's changing, but I'm talking about the status quo right now. And for example, guys from Southeast Asia are, you know, Chinese entrepreneurs. For them, Nigeria is like China 20 years ago. They have both the balls and the money and the technology. So obviously, I'm, I was talking about, you know, Eastern European managers or entrepreneurs or investors being better equipped than their Western brothers. But it, it's not really comparable to how, you know, Asian or Indian or Chinese investors or entrepreneurs are taking by storm really some of the Western African markets or Eastern African markets. Yeah, that's for sure. Have you formalized this framework of yours, capital tech balls? Because <laughs> so, so you're saying so Europe has capital, has tech, no balls. Africa has balls, tech, no capital. But Southeast Asia has all three. Maybe tech, yeah. Maybe yeah, tech, yeah. That's, yeah. That's- I mean, I, I do think that Africa presents a very conducive environment specifically for hardware startups because if you can build hardware that is sustainable and lasts in Africa you can you can take that anywhere but if you build a solution a hardware solution that works in Europe and Africa or sorry Europe and the US you take that to Africa it's not going to be able to function in the environment in the same way i mean when you look at the businesses that scaled up also with the with the tech in, in Europe when you dig deeper, you actually realize that there's so few companies that were able to scale the European technology in, in Africa. And now that I'm thinking about it, I would say that it's it's all about the access to, to the to, to the capital because if you have enough capital, you can throw money at most of the problems. You know? <laughs> Obviously, mm-hmm. it's always going to end. Mother Africa, Mother Africa teaches you hum, how to be humble. Doesn't matter how much money you have, there's always a way to spend it all very fast. Let's talk about that. So, so that's a good transition into what Rocket just did this week. <laughs> yeah, there, it finally came to an end, which is Rocket sold their entire stake in Jumia. As with anything in life, it's it's perception, and so there's there's a good way and a bad way to look at it. I think at the end of the day, what Rocket Internet did was a net positive for the ecosystem because mm-hmm. they burned a lot of outside European cash and they trained a lot of employees in Africa. That, you know, in, in the same way, a lot of ex-PayPal guys were recycled back into the Silicon Valley ecosystem. I think a lot of startups this decade are going to be uh, started by some ex-Jumias, you know, some some guys in their 20s that were working from Jumia, learned a lot, and started a company now. And so I think that's good. I think that at the end of the day, e-commerce was always a decade away. It still is. And it, it, specifically in Africa. And so when you have someone like a rocket that's able to come in and at least use capital to establish a base of that ecosystem, it's good. It's a good thing for everybody. But I understand the perspective of 
them trying to come in and and be perceived as a by African for African company when that's not the reality. Yeah, I mean, there's so many angles here. For sure, uh, let me just throw a couple of things here. Mm-hmm. I think it's a no-brainer that the net positive for the ecosystem is so amazing. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into the markets. Most of rocket internet marketing money was spent offline. Obviously, there were some cases which maybe hurt a lot that we didn't have local tech team. But you got to remember that local had a centralized tech team for all their continents operations. So Portugal was a decision which was made after realizing the whole rocket internet operations, the whole world, not only in Africa. But that wasn't communicated properly because someone didn't know how to talk to the press, etc., etc. Um, hundreps of million dollars pumped into the market. You know, hundreds of LPs that were able to raise their funds because Jumia did an IPO and that, that validated the market. Hundreds of founders that used to work for one of our brands, and then they were able to raise money for their own startup because they had Jumia or Jovago or anything else in their CV. Thousands of employees that used to work for us only for a couple of months that then they were able to get a promotion uh, or were moved to another local company because them working for an international business like ours really gave them more than two years in, in a university. And then something which is really not quantifiable But the most important thing is the education that you have put into the merchants and into the sellers. Obviously, e-commerce was the rocket thing worldwide. And we, we launched this in, in Africa, not because the demand was just exploding, but because e-commerce was, was hot globally and it was easy to raise money. Everyone was hoping that the market will catch up, that the, the currency exchange won't, won't go crazy, that there won't be any huge crisis in the meantime and the, and the online space will just grow and allow you to grow within it and and unfortunately a lot of bad strategical mistakes were, were made which are on which only seem obvious or stupid from from the hindsight the fact that we didn't you know build our own fintech solution and we only relied on the local ones which were not performing now seems like such a stupid mistake wasn't that obvious back then And so on. Then the, the the whole you know bad luck with going doing the IPO too fast because our main investor MTN had their own problems. They didn't want to be anymore in the business because the CEO changed, or they had their own financial issues and they had to quickly find a way to liquidate some of their assets and so on and so on and so on. And a lot of management decisions which were bad without you know being able to localize certain operations and appreciate the peculiarities of the market and so on and so on and so on. Having said all that, when we've launched and Oliver Zamwer, the founder of Rocket, said we're gonna exit from seven to ten years because this is this is how you build a sustainable business in a volatile market like this. Essentially that's what he did. Show me another startup when your essentially investor number one exits only after eight years. That almost doesn't happen. Most of business angels, most of seed stage investors want to want to exit earlier because their funds are like three to five years or maybe maybe seven. But really, eight years is a decent amount of time for an investor that was that was with you since the since the very, uh, very beginning. Yeah? And uh, somewhere, again, a lot of mistakes were done in the African operations, but this was still one of the most amazing companies I, I consider. And not many companies have done so much good for the African ecosystem as Rocket. And then, you know, you can Google Oliver Zamwer's master's thesis that he wrote, I think, in 98 at the end of his university, where he's basically analyzing the growth of American online businesses and how this type of business models can be now moved to other regions. Because as long as capitalism wins and democracy wins, 
Now it's not that obvious <laughs> that it's going to win, but back then we, we thought it's going to win worldwide. Essentially, he, he's, he's continuing to build an empire based on the master thesis he has written as a 19-year-old guy in 98. Show me another entrepreneur that does that. So you think at the end of the day, with hindsight, the right thing for Rocket to have done is to come into Africa, all chips into being a fintech play? Um, no, I just... So building a fintech player to help your checkout process essentially more seamless was never part of the playbook for Rocket. We, they never needed to do this in Europe or in Latin America or in Asia, really. So they've realized that without this, nothing's going to grow in Africa. It was already too late. But then again, it wasn't part of the playbook. Rocket was never strong in technology businesses. Rocket's strength is about execution, e-commerce, scaling up e-commerce operations, not technology. So yeah, this is why it was so hard to realize. But at the same time, it was one of the, from hindsight, one of the biggest problems was, was the fact that the online payments were not working and it was so hard to convince the users to switch to online payments. Just because like, the consumer behavior wasn't, wasn't there in terms of like, being used to buying things online? I mean, obviously, being used is, is only one thing. You can change someone's behavior always. There are countries where it's easier. There are countries where it's harder. Many people didn't want to pay up front. Paying upfront was the problem, not paying online, because they just couldn't trust the brand that they're going to deliver on time and the product they wanted. Right. And that's actually a result of, of you know, poor operations, because it's so hard to make them perfect. You know, when you know how, how the infrastructure challenges look like in Nigeria. Yeah. But uh, seamless payment, where the cards go through, when the cards are not stolen, and the money is not trapped between the switch operators, and so on and so on. This def- definitely moves the needle if you fix, fix this, yeah. So that, that report, um, the Citron Research Report that came out like pretty soon after the IPO, was there a lot of merit to that? Like, like what, what was your take on that? Yeah, well, Citron obviously is a short player. They, they play short and then they find dirt on you or the other way around. They, they, they search for some dirt. If it's a lead for them, they know they can make it bigger and then they play short. Their actions, I, I think, are already prohibited in a couple of uh, stock exchanges, I think they're 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 banned in in Singapore. It, but having said that, after they did what they did, they've issued the bad press. Stocks went down like crazy. They've made their own money. Jumia did the internal investigation, and obviously, a lot of miss, essentially some criminal activity happened. That's you know sales guys were lying in their reports just to make money. But we were facing with that, those problems since day one in almost every country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my sales guys signing up hotels were paid commission from every hotel signed. And I had to hire, fire many people because they were faking up hotels, giving me fake contracts with fake photos, fake names of rooms and prices. <laughs> and then I would, I would call the, the number on the contract. And that was in the book where we're asking, is this hotel XYZ? Uh, and, and the guys who is asking, because obviously there was someone paid on the other side of the phone number to confirm it just to get that commission and, and run away. <laughs> that's funny. I remember a situation in Morocco where people were faking restaurants. Obviously, that's a typical case you're, you're facing with. And for sure, this must have somehow affected some of the results they were reporting. And for sure, those reports were then passed to, to investors. But to, you know, to assume that the whole board of Rocket Internet w- was involved, considering, you know, how much they could gain in compared to how much they could lose, just seems unlikely to me. So unlikely. Also, me knowing those people. And, you know, remember, I, I had some problems with Rocket Internet after I left and opened Hotel Online because then they, they were threatening me to, uh, to sue me for non-compete 
for all the breaches of the contracts that I have done for millions of dollars. Uh, of course, without, without the basis, but they didn't want me to grow my company because they were afraid that I'm going to bring their competition to the market. Another long story. So it's not like I, I don't have a reason to also be on the side of Citron. Yeah? I'm, I'm still trying to be objective here. And, and although I have reasons not to like some people in the board of Rocket Internet, because they were also not super fair towards me, based on my three and a half years of working with them and knowing how they operate, I just cannot believe that this this happened. And again, there was never any proof for that. Yeah. yeah. Besides those those sales level guys taking numbers because they just wanted to get some money. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. How much time do you spend in the North Africa region? You mentioned Morocco there. No, me zero. So um, I know that story from Morocco from Food Panda, which was our food delivery business, or Hello Food. I think that was the name. I don't remember now. Yeah, Hello Food. <laughs> but uh, I was responsible for online travel, and we didn't go to North Africa. We focused on Sub-Saharan Africa. So got it. Obviously, the hub for West Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, and then and growing. To, to neighboring countries. Yeah, I've, I've spent a couple of days in Casablanca and I, I mean, I had a fantastic time there. I really, really loved it. But it just seems like specifically Morocco, Egypt have become super, super hot markets. I think, didn't Egypt attract the most venture capital deals last year? Yes, it did. Uh, and I'm not surprised here because I also had an adventure with Glovo, which is a great European uh, last mile logistics uh, platform. And uh, I was ad- advising them on the African expansion and, and we went to Morocco, uh, they went to Egypt, uh, Kenya, uh, Ivory Coast, and yeah, obviously Egypt is, is is an amazing country, amazing region. A lot of a lot of Arabic influences, right? So it depends how you define geographically. It's it's Africa for sure in terms of business connections, culture, etc. There's a big difference between Egypt and and you know Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. It's 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 much more akin to the akin to the the Middle East GCC region than than the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. Cairo is certainly top of my list right now. I think uh, I don't know if you know Leyland Rice, but he he does the Africa fintech summits. But the next one is going to be in Egypt, so I'll, pr- I'll probably be in Egypt in November, and I'm super excited about it. I mean, it'll be my first trip there, and very keen to see what's what's going on on the ground there. But Marek, this has been great. Is there anything we haven't covered yet that that you wanted to to, to get into? Um, well, you allowed me to speak about my book, which is great. <laughs> I'll send you the invoice for that later today. <laughs> um, that, that's, that's cool. Uh, if anyone's interested in this, hearing this more of the story, um, just go to chasingbackunicorns.com. You have their links to all the platforms. You can you can get it on ebook, audiobook, hard copy. I think it's also worth mentioning that all the revenue from, from this book, as well as any speaking engagement that I'm um, getting invited to, all that revenue goes to a foundation which I launched. You can also read about the foundation on the same website. So yeah, go check it out. All right, man. Well, appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me again. Have a great day. Stay safe.